Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbow, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talked to David Thomas, class of 2007, legal news reporter at Reuters News. David is going to tell us how his time at NIU's student newspaper set him on a path to cover stories about international trade all the way to the halls of justice. Joining us today is David Thomas from the class of 2007. David, what do you do? Uh, I am a business of law reporter uh, for Reuters, and uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, so uh, David, how did you uh, fall into the uh, this particular field of writing? It was kind of by accident. I, I didn't set out to become a, a reporter who covers the ins and outs of the legal industry and how lawyers attract and retain clients. I, I kind of, I started off covering policy down at the Illinois State House, and then I made my way to cover international trade policy out in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And then when I came back to Chicago, the best uh, the best uh, reporting job I could find was covering, uh, you know, the courts and uh, the uh, courts and uh, other legal stuff in downtown Chicago. And then I kind of just fell into uh, business of law reporting at the American Lawyer. And then uh, Reuters, uh, a lot of other news organizations are starting to cover the business of law. And well, that's how Reuters uh, poached me, I think, about seven or eight months ago now. Wow. There's a lot to. Yeah to track back um, yeah. with your, your journey there. Cause that really sounds like such a cool path of how you began and just kept on rolling with this. I have uh, so many questions about how you even became interested in, in, in that. So let's start off uh, with the first question. Where, where did you go after you left WeGo? So after I graduated, I attended uh, Northern Illinois university in DeKalb for four years double majoring in uh, journalism and political science. But I think the more important part is that I worked for the student newspaper out there, uh, the Northern Star. It was a, a great experience. I, I learned a lot in my time there that I think would be a little difficult to sort of replicate in a classroom setting, although the professors at NIU did certainly try. So after I did that, uh, after I graduated in 2011, I signed up for the public affairs reporting program uh, down at the University of Illinois Springfield. UIS has this neat little grad program where it's only a year long uh, and you basically, they teach you how to become a reporter. So like the first semester is all about learning about how the state of Illinois operates. You know, how does, you know, what are the different provisions of the constitution? How do the courts work? How does the legislature interact with the executive branch and so on? And then in the second semester, you are paired up with a news, uh, either a newspaper or a TV station, depending on your specialty. And you basically cover the Illinois legislature's spring session. You're, uh, you know, you're, you're covering legislation as it's introduced live from the floor. And uh, it was a, a really great experience. And, you know, by the end of the program, you know, you have a full master's degree. So. Yes, even though the program only took a year, I am uh, technically a, a I do have a uh, master's degree. That sounds like an incredible program. Um, oh, it's you are really immersed in, you know, one of the country's most um, fascinating and aggravating state houses, I think, um, which is uh, Illinois, because every I mean, everyone's got an opinion about it, and you're really in there forging your 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 chops as a reporter, a young reporter, uh, and all that. So, so let me rewind a little bit. When you were at uh, Northern, how did you? Um, what were some of the the student assignments that you had at the Northern Star? Uh, I did a lot for like my first two years there. I did a lot of the uh, campus. Uh, I was in the, the the campus section, so I would cover anything from. I did a lot of. I was actually doing a lot of student government reporting, so I covered their meetings every week. I would cover the elections every year or so for like two years. I would do, you know, there'd always be some controversy involving like professors or student politicians. It really kind of seemed like a, 
at certain times that uh, some of the student politicians were Illinois politicians in training, <laughs> if you uh, get my meaning. Yeah, and sure. uh, it was, uh, yeah, there was never a, uh, a dull moment, so to speak. So then when you went to Springfield, you know, now, so now you're able to really um, get more close to real power, you know, in, in such a way. What were the ways, what were some of the, the, the assignments that you remember that were very formative when you were in the grad program there? There were a couple ones. Uh, one of the stories that at least I followed a lot that year or that semester was uh, about uh, whether or not police officers could be recorded in a public setting. It used This used to be several years ago. I don't think it's the case anymore, but you used to face very stringent penalties if you recorded a police officer's audio without his permission and if you were in like a public setting. And what would happen is that you had these stories of like a guy would try to like record his court proceeding because he thought that he was getting a bad shake and he was arrested and charged with crimes that could have left him in prison for 75 years because, you know, you count how many police officers are in a potential courtroom and you're suddenly a guy's looking at 75 years in prison because he thought that the judge was trying to screw him over. And so there was a lot of public outcry because the penalties for recording police officers, uh, again, audio uh, from an audio perspective, they were so stringent uh, that a lot of people were calling it for it to be reformed. So I covered that a lot. Uh, I covered guns part of it too, uh, uh, for part of the semester too. Guns, at least at that point, you know, whether or not to have concealed carry in Illinois was a big issue. And I remember for that story, I went out to a shooting range in Springfield and interviewed, uh, you know, customers there for their thoughts on uh, a potential concealed carry bill. And I actually got to fire uh, a gun in that situation too. No, so you were, so yeah, you were able to kind of like immerse yourself in, in the story to, to that extent, just to, and then, you know, meet the people that were going to be touched by possible yeah. uh, legislation. So, okay, so, okay. So then after Springfield, where do you go after that? After Springfield, I took a job with the Daily Chronicle in DeKalb. So I kind of basically went back to where I was covering pretty much like everything under the sun in DeKalb. I covered city government, school, the school district, the library board, uh, the park district, and then, you know, any general news assignment that came across my desk. And I did that for like 13 months. And then I was like, I, I really need to get out of there. And so I began applying for jobs in Washington, D.C., because it was something I always wanted to do. So I applied to a bunch of places and finally got an interview and a job offer from this uh, policy newsletter. Yes, that's right. I said newsletter uh, called Inside U.S. Trade. They kind of cover the ins and outs of U.S. international trade policy Uh for, uh, you know, trade professionals. And that's kind of how I fell into sort of the policy focused writing for professionals, for people who like know and care about these kinds of very complicated issues. So what's the learning curve on something like that? Because I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to get wrap my mind around um, oh, it's, it's even it's, DeKalb to then go to then learn about something very complicated uh, like that. How were you able to uh, in, uh, adjust to uh, a type of uh, economic field that you may not have had a lot of experience with? Oh, it was rough. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, the U.S. international trading, the, the international trading system and the, the U.S.'s position in it is incredibly complicated. And, you know, there are, are whole divisions within, you know, law firms dedicated to kind of unwinding and guiding people through it. So yeah, it was definitely a challenge. But you kind of just, you kind of just pick it up and you learn, if you learn the basics, if you learn the basics about how the system is supposed to work, what is supposed to happen, it kind of, that gives you a good starting point. If you can know the basics, learn what it should be happening, kind of why some of these other countries might feel this way or why these other companies are maybe pushing for, you know, certain policy positions to be included in trade deals, 
I mean, you, you do learn as you uh, as you go along, but it, no, it is it is very tough. I, I'd say maybe it took me about seven or eight months before I kind of felt really comfortable with the with the the, the subject material. So how do how how do you then so as you were writing for this particular policy group, how do you get your story like how so in that regard how do you seek out a particular story for that particular type of medium because I mean so presumably when you were at DeKalb uh, for um, the newspaper that you left an an editor maybe had a, a beat for you to maybe follow and, and would give you stories that would come across your desk. Was it a different experience about how you would then find stories to write for the newsletter when you're in Washington? Not really. I mean, the, the sort of the neat thing, at least with journalism, is that the mechanics of the job are kind of the same. It's just really the content material changes. So like, you know, you, you learn, for instance, with international trade, you learn exactly what the debate is. You learn who the players are. You learn to see if there's any kinds of meetings or regular schedule uh, that they go along with. Because at the time, like the U.S. was, you know, negotiating all these different, the Obama administration, I should say, was, you know, negotiating all these international trade agreements. And there would be regular meetings about when, you know, the U.S. would be meeting with officials from the EU or Japan or China or whomever the deal was with. Uh, so, you know, you you meet the people, you learn the schedules, you learn the issues, and then you talk to the people who would care about that stuff. Because any, you know, any anything that's worth covering is going to have people and groups that care about it. So you just talk to them. The, the really kind of the key uh, sort of really kind of the key thing about this is that you just talk to people and sometimes they'll be talking to you. Sometimes they'll reach out to you and say like, hey, Dave, I think this is a really cool thing for you to cover. I think you should, uh, you know, I, I think you should be aware of this. And then other times, uh, you know, you yourself are like, say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why, why is it this way and not that way? And so you sort of generate the story idea yourself. And then sometimes your editor will get a tip or your colleague will get a tip or tell you, Hey Dave, you really should investigate that. So it's really all about communicating with people and, you know, the ideas either come to you or, or you come up with the ideas. That's interesting that, you know, that there, it's such a exchange between developing these relationships and all of that. Is there, is there anything where you feel like maybe the person's telling you something because they want it to maybe be not necessarily like a leak or something like that, but like to create a type of, um, um, just raise the question to then create controversy through a particular channel. Is that something that happens in journalism? Oh, definitely all the time. And it's something, you know, it, it, it does happen. Uh, you know, some people will use your publication or your, uh, your story to kind of like float a trial balloon. But at the same time, I wouldn't say that that necessarily negates the value of what they're saying. The key thing is to not take everything at, face value per se, but to check it with somebody else. If someone tells you, hey, the U.S. really wants to include uh, hybrid vehicles in this trade agreement, you go to, say, the EU representative or the Taiwanese representative and check with them, hey, is it true that the U.S. really wants to include hybrid vehicles? And they'll be like, well, they'll either confirm it or maybe they'll deny it or maybe they'll say like, yeah, they do, but everybody wants it in, you know, like, you know, they'll, the, the, the key thing is to always check with other sources to see if, you know, how serious is this trial balloon, so to speak. I like that, how you explain that, because it, it, it so if it comes to you, it's your obligation to triangulate like a source, you know, like a go against, not go against, but to confirm uh, what that may be by how other people have the various different kind of perspectives uh, from that. So, so you were in Washington um, what, what, what is, what's it like to be in a, a reporter in a very important media town like Washington? It was, a, I, I think maybe a little different for me because I was in, I was covering sort of policy. So I wasn't really kind of doing sort of the day-to-day -day political horse trading stuff that some of my other colleagues were doing. 
like me and my uh, me and my colleagues at Inside US Trade, we would be the guys at the press conference uh, asking, you know, very specific questions about very sort of arcane sounding trade policies and whatnot. And whereas everyone else would be like, sir, the, the president said that you're an idiot. What do you think about that? And I'd be like, excuse me, sir, I have a question about this really arcane provision from the 1978 trade law. And so uh, it, it was a little different, but I did remember like, you know, I would go to parties with people with, you know, with some of my friends who, you know, weren't reporters and their coworkers or colleagues would be like, ooh, reporter, I don't want to talk to you. So, I mean, it depends on, it depends on the person and, and I guess maybe it depends on the administration too, but it was definitely cool. I got some really cool experiences. Like I got to cover the uh, 2014 State of the Union address. So I got to like be in Statutary Hall, and like interview John McCain and be like, you know, 10 feet away from where like Jake Tapper was uh, reporting out. So, it, I mean, it was a very cool experience, something that you can't really replicate now, but it, it, those kinds of experiences stick with you. While you were in, in, in Washington, who are the type of journalists that you really admired while you were there when you were working? There's, a, well, I guess while I was in Washington, I mean, first and foremost, uh, my coworkers, people like Victoria Guida, uh, Matt Schuel, Ben Hancock. Uh, Victoria actually is now at Politico, so I really admired how she been how she has gone from trade to covering uh, financial services. I think is maybe the best way to describe it. She covers the Federal Reserve a lot and everything sort of relating to the Fed and money policy. And uh, uh, there's a bunch of, I mean, there's a ton of other reporters out there who I, I like and respect a lot. Uh, Brianna Ely, uh, Brett Fortnum, uh, Ryan Rainey, although now he's actually becoming, trying to become a lawyer. Uh, good luck to him. <laughs> um, and then, you know, since joining Reuters, there's like a ton of colleagues that I've met uh, who are based out of DC that I, you know, I've, I've seen their work online and stuff and on Twitter and I have nothing but the absolute uh, respect for them. So you were in Washington and then, uh, and you're working for this, uh, this particular uh, trade organization. Where, where did you, where did you go from there? Sure. So I did, I did it for two years and, you know, I, I got married to my uh, girlfriend who was also a West Chicago alum, uh, alumni and, uh, you know, it was like 2015 or so, and we we're kind of trying to decide, you know, do we do we want to stay out here for a long time or do we want to like, you know, come back to Illinois and, and try to start a family? And the thing that you don't really kind of understand with DC is that it is immensely expensive. Like my car insurance that, yeah. payments doubled just just by moving out there. Uh my uh, the base rent for my apartment in Crystal City, which is basically uh, our, like, you know, like downtown Arlington, Virginia, the base rent for like my 700 square foot apartment is still more expensive than what I'm paying for like my house now huh. to give you a sense of how expensive it is out there. And, you know, journalist and uh, a nonprofit, which is what my wife uh, was doing it's a little hard to uh, come back. You know, it's a little hard to like find a house and raise the family on that. So we moved back uh, to Illinois in the fall of 2015. And uh, after about a month of job hunting, I took up, I got a job at the Chicago daily law bulletin where I would be covering like appellate courts and other uh, legal news happening. So does that, so when, when you worked for, um, this new organization, how did that, how did your, 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 your day changed? Would you have to show up at the courts? What was the, the beat, so to speak? Like, what did you, how did you, how did you operate? Uh, basically, you know, I would take the train down into the city and I kind of missed the job because like, I would walk like six miles a day, get a lot of steps in on my step counter. And, uh, obviously that's not the case anymore. Uh, but, you know, I would go to the appellate courthouse every day to pick up the new batch of opinions. I would call around, you know, I would attend different, uh, I would I would attend uh, different sort of appellate lawyers association luncheons, interview justices and, uh, you know, well-known appellate lawyers, 
um, you know, based on like what they were doing uh, and things like that. Uh, I also did, uh, I also covered the Chicago City Council uh, because at the time, uh, police reform was becoming a very hot topic in the city. I think I was at the Law Bulletin for like three weeks when the court ruling ordering the release of the Ron McDonald video came out. Oh, wow. So I decided, I decided on my own that I wanted to cover the sort of the legal aspects of police, uh, of police reform. And one way to do that is to cover all the different settlements that the Chicago City Council pays for alleged police misconduct. But that's still kind of like a new learning curve as well, right? I mean, you so if you left international trade policy and then came to this new position where you have to maybe learn more um, legal jargon, all that, would you say it was a similar learning curve or were, were some things a little bit quicker to pick up in this new field? I'd say some things were a little more, uh, some things were, I guess, a little easier to pick up because, uh, I mean, you know, the, the the international trade has an entire legal system in and of itself. And it is once you read like a 300 page report about whether or not U.S. labels on meat violate Canada and Mexico's right to free trade, it's a little easy to kind of get through uh, an Illinois appellate court opinion. No offense, of course, to the fine justices on the Illinois appellate court system. Uh, but I mean, you know, it, there's always going to be a learning curve to everything. The key thing is to always sort of ask questions and don't be afraid to admit that you don't understand what exactly, you know, what, what exactly is happening or why things are a certain way. There's, there's nothing wrong with admitting that you don't know. The only issue becomes is if you don't know and don't tell anybody, well, then that that's when it really becomes a problem. But it's OK to, like, tell your editor. Your editor knows that you may not know what exactly, you know, a Rule 23 order is or, you know, how exactly the Illinois appellate court system works in conjunction with the trial court system and whatnot. It's, it's OK to say that you don't know you're there to, you know, you are there to learn. I'm going to have some questions about the craft of writing. Sure. Um, soon. But like as I'm thinking about it right now, when you when you were saying that you have to make your way and slog through a 300 page document about something that is very nuanced and, and, and loaded with a lot of um, uh, kind of legal jargon and all of that. What would you say is like another, like really critical skill that a journalist like you um, have to have in order to do your job well? I would say, you know, this is maybe a little, maybe a little broad, but you need to have critical thinking as well as I would say some deduction skills, because yes, there is obviously, you know, with some of these documents, uh, you know, whether it's an in international trade or in, uh, you know, just the U.S. legal system or, and you know, any other uh, sort of any other sort of complicated policy proceeding, there's always going to be lots and lots of detail there that's going to be extraneous, but you may not necessarily realize it. And the thing that you can always do is that you can ask somebody who knows, because there's always going to be someone who knows. There's always going to, you know, whether it's your editor or maybe an attorney for one of the cases, there, you can always ask somebody, hey, what exactly is the most important takeaway here? And as you do more of that, you kind of understand sort of what exactly is the key issue here. Because, you know, a court might rule on, you know, five or six different questions, you know, in a given ruling, but there's usually only one or two things that are really important that should be at sort of the top of your story. And so, I mean, it takes practice and, and there's not really a sort of a fine line to do it because every court decision, every sort of policy area is different. Sometimes it'll just be, you know, sometimes you'll get a policy report and it's all important or there's 10 or 15 different takeaways, that's fine. But sometimes there's really only one or two and you can kind of just ask around and either ask your coworkers or even kind of just see what the competition is reporting on to kind of help you get a sense of sort of what is the thing that we really most care about here? Because there's a reason why you're covering, uh, you know, this particular report or this particular ruling. And that kind of, you know, answers the question right there. 
it's interesting because it's such a it, you have to be so reflective of all of those components to develop that type of intuition as a thinker and then therefore how that informs your writing so it's really that was really interesting how you were able to kind of walk through that uh that process uh, and you have, and you have to do it quickly <laughs> right that was that you're that part too. like you were at the the bulletin and then you made the switch to Reuters. How did you get that opportunity to go there? Oh, so I, I was at the Law Bulletin for four years. And then in 2019, I heard about an opening at the American Lawyer, which is sort of like, you know, one of the premier outlets for legal news, especially for business of law news, uh, you know, that you can find in the country. So I, I applied there and I got the job and I joined it in September 2019. And funny enough, I, I took the spot that an old law bulletin colleague of mine, Roy Strom, had for like three or four years before he went to Bloomberg. So Roy was at the law bulletin with me. He went to the American Lawyer. And then when he left the American Lawyer, I got his old job <laughs> uh, and became uh, ALM's point person in Chicago. And then I was there for about nine months when Reuters poached me and I joined uh I joined Reuters in July of uh, 2020. So how's Reuters different than any of the other um, news organizations that you're at or, or uh, publications that you were at? Well, it's certainly larger. Like it's, it's the biggest company I've ever worked for. I mean, we have like tens of thousands of, of employees, reporters around the world. And so, you know, there's an entire, you know, you know, there's system upon system upon system in place, both for reporting the news as well as, you know, just simple like HR bureaucracy stuff. If, you know, uh, So that's, I would say, one difference. I would say another difference, too, is that like because it's all online, there's no like there, there's no other publication I'm sort of writing for. Because when I was at, uh, you know, the law bulletin, when I was at. Uh, when, when I was at the Law Bulletin, when I was at the American Lawyer, when I was at Inside US Trade, there was always all these different sort of uh, paper, magazine, or sort of hard copy deadlines I would have to meet uh, or, or worry about. You know, here at Reuters, there's basically nothing but online. I'm writing, and you know, as soon as it can, or maybe there's an embargo in place, but it's going to go online. And, you know, if it gets picked up in the New York Times or whatever, you know, that's not really my, I don't have to worry about that. So that, that is nice that like, I just kind of have one deadline, one sort of outlet or uh, of news to worry about, as opposed to like saying, okay, the magazine's done. What about the online part? You know? So I guess that kind of gets to my next question, which is sure. um, right now, how many what would the desk of David Thomas look like right now? So do you have um, a story that's going to be due for lack of a better term, like that's you're going to have to have uh, submitted by X, by like mid to short, like short term, midterm, and then long term. like how many, how many plates are you spinning in terms of stories that you have going on like right now? Uh, I would say that right now, thinking about it, I probably have at least three plates spinning in the air, all sort of, I, I have one sort of longer term project that I just started working on that'll probably take me a couple of weeks. I have, I'm, I'm current, I don't want to say I'm currently working on it because it's not like I'm talking to you and writing this, but I am in the middle of sort of redoing this profile of a smaller law firm that had a really good financial year in 2020, in spite of the economic uh, devastation caused by the pandemic. Uh, and then I've got like on Thursday, I'm interviewing the managing partner of a very large litigation firm. And I wouldn't say that's really medium term because as, as soon as I'm done interviewing him in that video, video for that is posted that'll go up so i i don't know like on any given day i'm writing at least two to four stories that i just got assigned that day and then turned out that day 
I'm, so I'm pretty quick. What? So how much of it is that you have the autonomy to go find a story versus you are um, assigned a story? Like what's the, what's the balance of that? I mean, I'd say it's probably 50, 50. I mean, I think at this point in my career, I have a pretty good understanding of sort of what is counts as a story or what, uh, or what isn't a story. So like, you know, uh, like let's like take like last Monday, for instance, you know, I wrote stories about, you know, a law firm opening up a new office in Atlanta another law firm laying off staffers, uh, a law firm dropping charges against, uh, or dropping, I'm sorry, civil claims against an ex-partner. And then, uh, you know, a, a longer piece about how how well law firms are doing financially. And, and in almost all of those cases, it, it kind of, you know, it doesn't really become a, a my idea versus my editor's idea. Like if I didn't pitch those stories, then my editor certainly would have. And I would agree to it because I mean, you know, they're, they're pretty, it's pretty straightforward stuff. At a certain point, it doesn't become sort of whose idea was it. You get a really good, you know, if, if you're good, you'll get a really good feel for your beat and, you know, it'll just kind of come naturally to you. What, so what's the writing process like for you? So like you, you sit down, um, I mean, obviously there's a ton of research and reading that you have to do, but the actual like writing process, you know, you have to open up your computer and start, um, banging away. Um, what's that, what does that look like? Uh, I guess, I mean, if I'm not hot, <laughs> if it's not really hot news, I mean, I can take a, a little bit of my time, maybe read through the release or the statement or, or whatever, go through our past stories and, and. I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty easy in the sense, you know, if it's, you know, if it's a hard news story, it's, it's pretty easy. You know, you don't necessarily have to rewrite, you know, reinvent the real, the wheel with every story. If a law firm is opening in Atlanta, you say, you know, Quinn Emanuel or Carton Sullivan is opening up in Atlanta. And then you add a little bit of context, whether it's about, you know, I would say the sort of the key thing that maybe kind of that can take a little bit is finding the the extra special details that kind of comes with journalism as opposed to sort of regurgitating a press release. Because, yeah, the press release can give you something interesting, like, you know, like they opened up in Atlanta. Well, who cares? Why should we care about them opening up in Atlanta? It's kind of the reporter's job to sort of accurately summarize oh, they are opening up in Atlanta and they've tapped like a 20-year veteran of another law firm to do it. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, and so that would say, I would maybe say that kind of takes, uh, I would say sort of a more time is, is, is sort of finding the reason as to why people should care about this now. Yeah, law firms open up in a place, but why, why should I care? Uh, I have so many more questions. Um... Well, go for it. I mean, I, I love, I love being interviewed. I, I, one of the things that as you were describing this, like, I know I kind of asked this before about how you think, but like even more uniquely, you have to read in a particular, what's your best like reading tip as a reporter? I know because it's, you have to see things a little bit differently when you're coursing through all of this stuff. I, I, I know I, I asked something similar to it, but this might be a little bit more nuanced or more nuanced with that you have to read a particular way. How do you sort through that? I'll read through something quickly. I would say multiple times, you know, because, you know, if depending on sort of what the news is or depending on the report, uh, you know, it might take you a couple times to sort of get through it or to make sure that you're not missing some key important detail. Uh, like an example, uh, like I think an example, uh, an example of this is that like uh, there's a Chicago-based law firm that you know hired uh, the former senior counsel to a Texas attorney to the Texas Attorney General last week, and sort of the key thing that like you know you're reading this and I'm like wait a minute, this is a Chicago firm, but I've interviewed her husband before and he lives in Texas. Is she going to be commuting from? Austin, Texas to Chicago every week, uh, you know, or is this, is this the Chicago firm that's branching out into Texas? So 
I think, you know, it's not necessarily like a reading technique, but always just trying to make, uh, always trying to read it and think of questions too, as you're reading it, because there's always going to be something that they leave out of the release or maybe some other question that has come up in your line of reporting that you would want to ask. Like this particular uh, person, for instance, that this law firm hired, she was the senior counsel to an attorney general who was under great scrutiny for like allegedly using his office to help political donors. And she was leaving at the time when a bunch of other aides had resigned. And yet, and you know, it's with that in mind that you have to ask, hey, you know, when I got her on the phone, I had to ask, hey, you know, are you, are you resigning because you think you're having issues with your boss or were you quitting anyway? Uh, so that's like an example of like, when you're reading it, always try to keep sort of questions in mind. Like, why is she really leaving? Why are these law firms really going here? What exactly is the meaning or the impact behind this settlement or this ruling or this decision? What's the strategy? That's the question I always try to ask. And whenever I read a release or a report or something, I always try to keep that in mind, something like that in mind. I know that's probably not what you were expecting. No, no, it is because now that now I have another question, which is now in the case that you were you were just describing, you you have to in some ways be not. It's not that you're being controversial, confronting her adversary, uh, but you have to. But you have to. Whatever she provides you in that is going to be either spin or the truth. How do you then, and depending on how she answers that, you have to then interpret that. So what would, how, how would, how do you then um, present that back to your reader? I would say, you know, the way you sort of present that back to your reader is sort of pre- lay out the facts to them. I mean, on the one hand, you know, there's a fine line between sort of making judgments based on the facts as they're already known versus, you know, spitting a story for your readers. You know, if this woman says that she resigned, you know, that she was planning to resign anyway, even though that there is these problems in your in her office, you know, the thing that you can at least do is to take her at her reward and make sure that you cite her as saying this is why she said she left. Because that, I mean, I, I, I admit and I kind of see sort of the issue here. At, at, you know, at what point can you sort of verify uh, some of this stuff? And, you know, in certain cases, you can't really. You kind of have to take yeah. them at their word. But as long as you communicate that to your readers saying, like, this is what he says or this is what she says about this decision. Like, I was covering, uh, I've been covering a lot of uh, of issues revolving involving Lynn Wood. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he's oh, yeah. a conservative attorney who... Uh, has taken part in a lot of the post-election litigation uh, on behalf of President Trump. And he has espoused or embraced support of some pretty violent and just insane conspiracy theories like QAnon. And I asked him, hey, it seems like you support QAnon because you had it in your Twitter bio. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. I don't support QAnon. Don't you dare smear me with that bull. And that is what he said. So I'm not just swearing on your podcast for no reason. But he said, don't you dare smear me with that. I'm not a QAnon supporter. I believe it supports unity. And you're like, okay. I mean, I'm going to note the fact that you've got a conspiracy theory statement here in your bio. But if you say it's about unity, I mean, you know, that's what you say. That same attorney, by the way, later called me, me and Reuters a communist. So there's nothing, you know, you Uh, On the one hand, you do have to sort of verify and double check with what they're saying at the same time. If they really want to spend their statement calling you a communist, I don't know, you know, there's nothing else you can really do. You're not the one, you know, you're not the, you're just a storyteller. You're not the one making the story or making the news. That makes any sense. Yeah, that's got to be so true. So when you, so when you, when you reached out to him, because he is in the news a lot, because I I follow a lot of political Uh, and all this stuff. Did you, did you call him or was this through correspondence? How did you, how did you talk to him? I, I emailed him. I called him, I called him at his uh, office and I emailed him and he called me back and let, and it was a very, very hostile five minute oh. conversation. 
he was not happy with me or with my questions. And he like, you know, he was threatening to, to sue me. He's like, I'm not afraid to sue Reuters. And I'm like, okay, I just want to just ask you about, you know, your apparent support for QAnon. And he's like, I am not a supporter. I believe it's about unity. Okay. Wow. Uh, and of course, this was before he went out and said that, you know, Mike Pence is a traitor and that John Roberts is a child rapist and murderer. Yikes. And, I, so, and, and for those stories, too, I asked him for his uh, comment and, you know, he called me a communist. So, so it, it just a follow up question that David. So, I mean, you, so you, you are talking to people that are, um, I mean, this, this guy is a, uh, a, a political mover and shaker in this, and and obviously very uh, current and, and is close to like some of the levers of power and all that. You were saying that you're preparing for a, a, a big interview uh, coming up as well. Like what goes into, cause that's a different type of, um, story is to interview someone. What are some of the what are some of the the modes of preparation for uh, interview and and how you approach of like what is it that you want out of that interview with that person? How do you um, what's what are some of the strategies for an interview like that? Sure. Well, you think about sort of there's a couple ways you think about. It. First, you think about what's happening with this firm. Is this a firm that's been in the news a lot lately? Is there more that we can learn about whatever's happening currently in the news that we can get from him? So you think about the firm, you think about this person, you know, why, why are you talking to him? Is he a big newsmaker? Is he involved in some sort of controversy or really big victory? Uh, and then you think about what's happening in the industry. So like this particular interview is likely going to focus on, you know, how law firms you know, we're, we're constantly interested in how law firms are handling the pandemic, whether it's their plans for reopening or financially how they're doing. So this particular interview is going to likely focus on like, okay, we have a vaccine and, you know, there's a vaccine being, uh, you know, people are getting inoculated with this vaccine. There's a potential end in sight for the pandemic. How is a firm like yours, which has, you know, more than 900 people uh, at least across uh, the U.S. and the world, how are you going to handle the reopening situation? Are you going to require people to get vaccinated, like before they return to the office? Uh, so those are the kinds of questions. And then, you, you, of course, you know, you ask your your very helpful and valuable colleagues, like you know, at least in my area, it'd be guys like David Barrio and Nate Raymond, and then uh, other reporters like. Uh, Caroline Spezio, uh, Sarah Merkin, Ariana McLymore, uh, Chinequo Sakwe, and you just kind of ask them, hey, have you talked with Quinn Emanuel before? What is something I should ask this guy before, uh, you know, which is something I should ask this guy before, you know, during our interview? So it, it, it's a lot. I mean, you kind of, you just do your research and you think and you read about what exactly is happening in the industry and in the world that you would want his specific input on. That, that's, that, that's so interesting. I, I think my next question might be the best question and the toughest question uh, that <clears throat> I have, which is um, what is, it's a two-part question and maybe they're the same. What is your dream assignment? Which is, let's say, Dave, you can go chase this and th there's you don't have to worry about anything. This is what you're going to do followed up by um what if you were given a uh a a chance to then write a book on the the types of things that you're interested what what would that be so they could be one and the same or maybe those are two separate things well what would my dream assignment be dream assignment be for uh like uh of 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 what uh what if you if they said take a half a year and you need to go investigate this uh, or whatever it would be. What, what do you think that would be? Honestly, that's a tough question because I, I can't think of any assignment, one assignment that I would want to do for half of a year. I'm so used to taking at most maybe a couple days or a week. Actually, that's not true. When I was at the American lawyer, I did a, a magazine assignment that, you know, I would do magazine assignment that would take me weeks at a time but I would also I was also doing daily stories at the time as well. So 
six months to just do one story. It just seems so foreign to me. I, I don't know. I guess, I guess maybe the dream assignment would be something that would be like a, I don't know, like a traveler's blog or something where I could just go somewhere and just maybe write a bunch of different little pieces, maybe, uh, you know, write a bunch of little different pieces in, in a particular, uh, like journal or something like that, as opposed to maybe say, do take six months and then come back with one big story. Cause I don't know. It, I've never really thought about it that. So I know. That it's one of those questions like, well, I never thought about it before. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I used to read about how like in the eighties newspapers would have reporters on staff or they would just have one guy and he would take, you know, he, he would do this really big investigative piece over the course of a year and, you know, bill out, you know, expense the newspaper for thousands of dollars worth of stuff. And I'm just like, Ooh, what, what company would do that now? You know, oh. the, the industry has changed so much that I can't even, it's difficult for me to fathom like a situation where I would need six months to really kind of work on the story. If anything, I might just work on the story, finish it in a month and then take off the next five months. <laughs> Very practical. Well, so what was your, so that would that, would that question encompass like what's, what, what would be the book assignment or what would be the book that you'd write? book that I write uh, it would be I don't know I or maybe you just like the medium that you're in I mean I really do like the medium that I'm in I mean I love my current job uh so much that you know I I have a difficult time envisioning of what else I would do if I were to write a book on something I guess I would be torn between sort of you know, what I do now and what I'm interested in. Cause like, I love like, you know, I, I love covering the business of law and sort of the, uh, the kooky people that you can meet in this beat. I never thought I'd be covering conspiracy theories uh, in this uh, beat, but nevertheless, here I am. So I guess maybe if I had to pick a book based on sort of what I cover professionally, it would be some kind of intersection between, uh, attorneys and conspiracy theories and I don't know maybe the insurrection on on, on January 6th it's so, some sort of some sort of book that would encompass those topics I think uh, oh, I, would, I, I would read it that sounds that sounds that sounds a fascinating too, and really important yeah but then I also really like stuff like you know heavy metal music comic books superheroes video games lots of different like 80s action movies like there's so many like other interests that i have that like are outside of like reporting in the business of law that like i'd be half tempted to just kind of write about uh just write about like action movies for like a uh for like six months or so there's a, a nice series on the ab club that i like to read a lot about uh the most important action movies of any given year and it's such a good series and I hate kind of reading it because it's like, dang it, why didn't I think of this? Why didn't I turn around a thousand piece thing about how awesome Lethal Weapon is? Uh, yeah, I mean, we when this interview, really, is, over, really, when this interview uh, is over, we're going to have to exchange our favorite action movies because I, you seem to have informed opinions that I like about action movies. So <laughs> we'll have to kind of carry that on after the interview. Uh, so... Um, who who whose style of writing do you do you really enjoy as 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 a writer? Like who do you like reading? They're like, oh, that's just that they're just very like you just love how they turn a phrase and and all of that. Who do you who do you admire as a writer? Who do I admire as a writer? Uh, I mean, this is probably going to sound like a cop out, but I really enjoy sort of like my colleagues' writing. I mean, a lot of them are very polished and good at what they do guys like Jan Wolf or, or, or Lawrence Hurley that, you know, and I'm sure too, like, you know, there's obviously an editing process and, you know, uh, you know, just going back and thinking through my own stories is just like, why? Yes, of course I wrote this. And certainly uh, my editor didn't take a flamethrower to it. <laughs> yep. This is all 100% me. Um, uh, so now I have, uh, 
I don't know if there's a particular writing style of, of an author or person that I enjoy the most simply because it's like, you know, even if I were to say someone like, say, Stephen King or uh, St- Stephen King or, or, or George R. R. Martin or someone like that or Ari Salvatore that like, even though I really enjoy their books, it's not like I can necessarily import that writing style right. into my own work, you know. Uh, Dave, this is the time of the interview where I ask you, uh, what are what's some advice that you would give current Wildcats, either about success or what it means to be a good writer? I would say maybe sort of a key skill to always, de- a key skill to develop sort of no matter what, uh, no matter what kind of field or work that you would want to get into is to sort of develop critical thinking skills and to always basically double check what you're reading. I've, I've lost track about how many times like my, I, my understanding of a story or maybe uh, of a story or a report or whatever has changed simply because I reread what I wrote or I reread what I thought. Uh, uh, I, I reread something and realized, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Or maybe there's maybe there's more to this than I realize. So there's no there's ever there's no ever harm in sort of rereading and double checking your work to make sure that is this is this right? Am I doing this the right way? Am I asking the right questions? Am I thinking about this the right way? I would say another tip for success too is to you know don't be afraid of not knowing the answer. I feel like sometimes that we have sort of like as a culture, we have a stigma, so to speak, of not admitting that you're wrong or not admitting to knowing something. And it's perfectly okay to not know or not understand a particular topic. I'd say that's actually kind of like the default sort of position of a reporter is that, you know, I'm calling these attorneys because I have questions. There are things I don't know. And it's sort of always sort of the default positioning of a reporter and it's okay to be like that. And I would say too, is to always kind of think about, you know, and and I would say this too, especially for the, uh, uh, you know, for the wildcats who are thinking about college is to, you know, kind of always have like a backup plan. You know, there is always like, you know, life is going to throw you so many different curveballs and opportunities and, you know, stumbling blocks that you always kind of need to, you know, it's never the end, you know, just because you didn't get into the right college or maybe the right grad school that you wanted, or maybe the, you know, your chosen career field isn't what you expected. There's no reason why you can't start over or why you can't, you know, go a different direction. David, this has been so, so informative. I've learned so much. This has been Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for your time. No problem at all, Brian. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music, Podcasts, and search We Go Vox.